Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey there, friends and music nerds. We had some sad news yesterday of the passing of the great drummer and percussionist, Mr. Hal Blaine. I thought we should acknowledge it here on the show. I was fortunate enough to connect with Hal back in the first season of this podcast, and he was so generous with his time and got into such great detail about his sessions and his history in the studio. And um, since the podcast has grown quite a bit over the last couple of years and has a bunch of new subs- subscribers that may not have gone back through the older episodes, I thought I'd go back for you and re-release this episode for anyone that hasn't had the chance to listen to it. I think you should hear it. And if you did listen to it back in 2016 when it came out, perhaps you might enjoy taking some time and uh, hear Hal talk again. He was a totally unique musician and really an unparalleled accompanist who personified everything in the process of record making that I love. And, you know, people like Hal are the reason that I got into doing this podcast in the first place. Hal Blaine's list of accomplishments in the studio are absolutely unbelievable, mostly due to the incredible run that he had as the A-list first call drummer in Los Angeles in really the golden age of rock and roll. From his early days with the Count Basie Big Band to working with Tommy Sands and Patti Page on the road, Hal learned everything he could about music and put all that to work in the studio for a staggering list of artists who worked out of Los Angeles in the 1960s. The Beach Boys, The Birds, Simon and Garfunkel, Frank Sinatra, John Lennon, Jan and Dean. He did TV shows like The Batman Theme, um, The Supremes, The Mamas and the Papas. Of course, his signature intro to the Ronettes' Be My Baby. It's estimated that he's on over 35,000 recordings. And he's said to be the most recorded drummer in history, which probably holds true to this day. When I was starting this podcast, I sent emails or made calls to people who I thought had a great story to tell, knowing full well that 99% of them would not be reachable or wouldn't be interested or would just never get back to me. Well, I cold called Hal Blaine and he got back to me later that same day and left me a message saying, Steve, I'm always ready to help anyone I can with an interview. A couple days later, we connected on the phone and spoke for a couple of hours and he was so generous with his time and stories, I honestly couldn't believe what had just happened when I got off the phone with him. So music nerds, in honor of one of the greatest music makers and soul shakers of all time, I bring you my conversation again from 2016 with the great Hal Blaine. Enjoy. Okay. How are you doing, man? Excellent. I'm hanging in there. Yeah. I wasn't feeling real good. I've been to the doctor yesterday, you know, at my age, unfortunately. How's that all going? How's your health? One of the things you learn as you go through life, is to don't ever ask an older person, how you feeling? 
<laughs> okay. Because they'll run down their entire medical life to you. <laughs> I've been a little bit sick. That's all. The heat doesn't help, and the barometric pressure of the desert here doesn't help. Yeah, tell me where you are. I, I'm not even clear where you live these days. I'm in Palm Desert, California. That's about 10 miles uh, kind of southeast of Palm Springs. Yeah, okay. Kind of our desert paradise out here. It's it's really hot right now, though, right? Well, yesterday was 122. Oh, my God. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it, bro- it did. It broke a record. Today is starting to cool off a little bit. Wow, that is nuts, man. I, I don't even know. Like, that's too hot to even go outside at all, right? It's pretty hot, yeah. And you just, you really don't go outside because... I have to go out somewhere and do something like I did yesterday. Yeah. You can't even touch your handle to get in back in the car. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's really, really. Um, and they have all kind of of heat warnings out there. Don't go out too much. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, um, I'd like to, to delve into um, like your early history for a minute because uh, your recorded history is very well known and... Um, you know, the stories of the Wrecking Crew and that whole era, which, of course, we can talk about that stuff. But I'm curious to know what was going on with you when you were a kid. Like, um, uh, I think you were born in Massachusetts. Is that correct? I was born in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, Is that where you spent most of your childhood, or did you move around? Well, when I was about seven years old, we moved to Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. In Hartford, Connecticut, when I was about... Uh, I guess 13-ish, I was going to Weaver High School in Hartford, uh-huh. and Ringling Brothers used to come to town once a year with the circus in those days, it was a big deal, Yeah, and they used to hire some of us kids that were bigger kids, high school kids, as roustabouts. What does that mean? Well, they were just general workers. Okay. You dragged canvas all over the place. Yeah. And unfortunately, on July the 6th, 1944, of which we're approaching the anniversary date, there was a matinee in, of the circus, yeah. of which I was in, and it burned to the ground. The 250 women and children were killed. Uh, it was July the 6th, 1944. What happened was that, I don't know, sometime prior to getting to uh, arriving in Hartford, the, and they used to arrive, arrive on their train. Just prior to arriving, they used to, uh, uh, what's the word? They used to sort of paint all the canvas that was growing up. Yeah. They used to use paraffin wax. Oh, and okay. The, and the paraffin wax made it waterproof. Right. And I guess it was not totally, completely dry. And at one point during the afternoon performance, about, I don't know, 2.30 in the afternoon, somebody, I guess, in those days, people smoking, somebody tossed a match or a cigarette, and it started a tiny little fire in the straw because they use straw for the floors because of all all the dirt and sand. Yeah, yeah. It was just a great big empty lots. And I think it was Keeney Park. I'm not sure. As I recall, for some reason, that rings a bell. Yeah. Anyway, fortunately, I was over watching the band. And I guess this little fire, everyone saw this 
tiny little fire that started, and the, the minute it hit the canvas, it was like a complete flame out. Really? And the whole goddamn thing was burning. Really? And all these people, it was just trying to get out of the fire. It was just awful. It was terrible. And I went to work immediately on an ambulance. I mean, there were so many people involved and all these children. And I became a medical aide practically overnight. This was during the war. It was toward the toward the end of the war. Yeah. World War Two. Yeah. But all the men were in the service. Right. So they were, were they were very enlisting, few men enlisting anybody that would help, I guess, right? Exactly. Very few men that were left. I remember Australia lost almost all of their men to the their military. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the point is, uh, I went to work at the hospital as a medical aide. Yeah. Trying to help these poor survivors. It was just, it was, it was like a war zone. How old were you when that happened? I was about 14, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think wow. I was 14, maybe just turning 15. What a traumatic thing for a kid to see and go through. It was terrible. Yeah. On the, on the wonderful side, I did meet the great um, clown Emmett Kelly. Okay. He was, I guess at that time, the most famous clown in the world. Very nice man. Yeah. And he worked at, at that circus? He was with that circus, yeah. He was featured, the featured clown mm-hmm. that never spoke. Right. And just a real nice man. And I was, you know, at the time, I didn't realize, you know, he was such a superstar. Uh-huh. And also, and I can't remember the name of the band leader now. If I heard it, I would remember. But he was a famous band leader in those days of of a brass band. He was the the brass band leader of uh, the Ringling Brothers they would come to town and, and set up shop and they would be there for like... Once a year, they set up the three rings okay. of which I was part of. So that was your job. You were the roustabout and, and you, you got to hang out with clowns and musicians and all that. And, and right. All the animals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and up and down the fairways and I learned carny talk uh-huh. and all kinds of things as a youngster. So what was your history with, with music? Like, did, was it was there music around the house, and what did your parents do and stuff like that? My, my dad was a shoemaker. Oh, okay. They were immigrants. My father was from Poland. Yeah. My mother was from Lithuania. Yeah. We lived in a, you know, all the Polish people lived in one area, and all the Jewish people, sure. all the Italian people. It was 1920. For me, I was born in 1929. Wow, okay. So, and I, you know, recently turned 87. Congratulations, man. (laughs) Thank you. It's been a long, been a long (laughs) haul. Was there music around the house? Like, were they into music at all? Or was that not? No, we were not, we were not musical people whatsoever. Although my father had a violin that he brought from, from uh, Europe when he was a youngster. Yeah. And we had that all those years. And when my dad passed away, I was, by then, I was now a member of Local 47, the American Federation of Musicians, also a member of Screen Actors Guild and and American Federation of Radio and Television Artists and a bunch of unions. And I had that violin, and I took it to a violin maker in Hollywood, right across from the union on Vine Street, and I had the violin gone through. It was done beautifully. Yeah, 
And then I had heard about this young boy that was a great wannabe violinist and didn't have an instrument or something. His dad was a guitar player, and I had heard about it through through the grapevine on Vine Street. Yeah. And uh, so I donated this instrument to this boy. Wow, good for you. And uh, I remember they took a lot of pictures of it. It was beautiful. It was a very nice little young kid. I was down on my knees <laughs> with all, all the union people, etc. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. And this boy, and I'm trying to remember his name at the moment. His father was a guitar player. Uh-huh. And he's become one of the top violinists, not only in the studios, but... In the uh, classical field. Oh, no kidding. I'd love to know who that is. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. God, I'm trying to remember his name. Well, that's what happens when you get old. You get a certain (laughs) age. Seriously, you start forgetting things. Well, you seem to be doing pretty good, man. And I'm, you know, I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm doing fine. I feel bad for my buddy... Glenn Campbell, who's not doing very well. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's that's terrible. This last Grammy, the Grammy before this last one, mm-hmm. he received my in in my case my eighth uh, uh, Grammy winning record of the year. I had eight of them now with with Grammy, and Glenn unfortunately is in a hospice. Yeah, in Nashville with complete Alzheimer's. He just doesn't know anybody. Yeah. And uh, he goes from, they tell me he goes from room to room and he plays and he sings for people. Really? And they don't know who he is and he doesn't know who they are. And, and, uh, wow. But he loves to play and I guess yeah. it keeps him physically okay. Yeah. Well, that's but he's good. just not, just not there mentally, unfortunately. Yeah. I was aware of that. And that's, uh, yeah, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible disease. Yeah, his daughter uh, is around Nashville quite a bit. I live in Nashville, and and his daughter's around. She plays banjo and uh, and sings and has a band, and she's doing really well. Um, That's not Debbie, though. You don't mean the older daughter from the first marriage. No, she'd be probably about 27, 28. Um, I can't remember her name offhand. I uh, drove them when, when they were children. I had an antique Rolls Royce that I loved. And I used to drive in the Hollywood Thanksgiving Parade, the Santa Claus Parade, every year. Really? It was a yellow Rolls-Royce convertible with a rumble seat. Cool. A magnificent car. Yeah, man. And I used to drive it in the parade every year. Uh-huh. And one year it was Glenn and his family. Yeah. Um, just great memories. Great memories. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, tell me about how you got into um, playing the drums. Like, obviously, it wasn't around your house much. So was it like a high school thing? Were you playing in marching bands and stuff in high school? Well, when I was when I was going actually going to Hebrew school, uh-huh. just be, about at the time I turned thirteen. Yeah. Um, right across the street from us was a big Catholic school. It was like a St. John's or St. Michael's or one of those. Mm-hmm. And they had one of those fife and drum bugle, uh, fife and drum um, brigades. Right, yeah. They used to do a lot of marching around the high school. Uh-huh. And I used to go over and watch them all the time, and I just loved the drummers. So mm-hmm. it was great fun seeing these, you know, seeing all the kids that played drums. And was that like a that was that like off limits to you because because you were at Hebrew school? <laughs> no, no, not at all, okay. not at all, off, not at all off limits. 
but the um, the priest, one of the, one of the young priests over there, used to see me looking through the through the gates, uh-huh. through the, the iron fencing, and he came over to talk to me one day, and he asked me if I was interested in music, and I said, yeah, well, I don't know, I see the guys with the drums, and I love them, and uh-huh. so he invited me in. And I got to meet a bunch of the kids. They were all about my age. Okay. He told me any time I wanted to watch and learn, you know, come on over. So this was marching band with like... So it was very, very, it was very nice. It was very legitimate. Did you pick up a lot of, uh, you know, like snare, drum? Well, that all came later when I actually attended my, the drum institute, the percussions, my uh, Roy Knapp School of Percussion. In Chicago, that was something else when I came back from from Korea. Oh, okay. That's when I actually started reading and, and writing and composing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so so after. But at that time, that's what was turning me on. Yeah. And I remember that my mother had an old rocking chair, mm-hmm. and the back of the chair were were was dowling, and the top used to lift off because I would kind of punch it off. Yeah. And a couple of the sticks were just like drumsticks, and those were my first drumsticks. Nice, handmade. Did you have a Did you have a drum you could play? Or? I used to practice on a pillow a lot. <laughs> Doesn't have quite the same response as a snare drum. My sister, Marcia, was when I was about, I guess, about fourteen, thirteen or fourteen. She bought me my first little what we called set of drums. Today they call it a. a a, a uh, kit, yeah. But in those days, it was a set of drums, yeah. And of course, all we had was radio, and I used to listen to Gene Krupp all the time, and all the all the dance bands that I grew up with, because that was the era of dance bands, the forties. Uh, Gene Krupa was a big one, and and who else did you hear that like really turned you on? Gene Krupa was the big guy. Yeah. A uh, Buddy Rich, who sure. became very famous, and he became a good friend of mine. He actually hired me to do some of his work. That must have been a thrill. Uh, yeah, it really was. And I, you know, slowly got to meet musicians. I knew every band in the book, um, so to speak. I mean, every arrangement. Um, so was that mostly, like, were you taking lessons or were you self-taught? Or how did you develop your technique? I was self-taught at first. Okay. Just learning about it and reading about it and listening to the radio Mm-hmm. almost 24 hours a day. I was glued to her. We had a tiny little radio. And uh, obviously before television or anything else. But my father used to, was a shoemaker and he worked at the Connecticut Leather Company. Mm-hmm. And on Saturday mornings, he would take me downtown Hartford, Connecticut, was the state theater, mm-hmm. very famous. And every band played there, every singer, every every comedian worked there every dancer uh, was a major major i mean it was it was before the ed sullivan show yeah uh, that happened on television but it was basically the same thing the band played people sang people danced people did comedy yeah like a like a variety show semi uh variety show right yeah and so i got to know all the arrangements of all these bands and uh, I was definitely hooked on music, and I would go down there. I would, at seven o'clock in the morning, my father would give me my 
I think it was a dime for children. <laughs> and ticket. I would go over and I'd be the first guy in line at seven o'clock in the morning and they would do the first show at eight o'clock uh-huh. and you, they would roll it, out. And it was just th- very thrilling for me as a youngster. Wow, I bet. Eight, eight o'clock in the morning they would have a show? Certainly. Well, they did five shows a day or six shows a day. <laughs> That'll get your chops together. And that's the way it was. Yeah. That's the way it was. And I, as I said, I got to know just about every arrangement in the book. I had good ears, obviously. And were there... And were I the, got to see every known band, every known drummer with all these bands. I mean, all the guys, that I can't even think of all their names right now. But all the famous drummers of the 40s... They all came through. They were all with big bands, including Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, etc., etc. And of course, I saw them all with Tommy Dorsey, with Betty Goodman. Sure. I got to see all of the singers and all, you know, every every band had a boy singer and a girl singer. Yeah, yeah. And I got to know all their arrangements and all their music. Would you hang out with any of those people, or, or were you just... Um watching no 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 i was just a kid and in the audience yeah front and center right so you weren't meeting any of them you were just watching and taking it all in i was just watching and and getting hooked on music yeah man yeah and were were there kids like your age that you were able to play music with or not so much no not really that my age i mean as i grew up uh in hartford um and i was in high school in fact, Emil Richards, a great percussionist, was in, also in, went to high school there. And Joe, um, what's his name, the father of the kid that died with Toto. Picaro. Joe Picaro, right. Well, his his father, Joe, yeah. was also from Hartford. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. And I, th- I think he also went to Weaver High just before me. I, I can't remember exactly because we've become very good friends. And Joe has the L.A. Conservatory or Academy out here in Pasadena. Uh Unfortunately, um, his son died. The other boy also died. Tragic. So, and and just a great family, wonderful people. I see him quite often. You know, we did a lot of sessions together when he finally moved out here. In fact, I was contracting at one point, and I used to hire, and I hired... Toto for the, their first major gig, I guess. Really? <laughs> it was a private party in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And it was a great, great producer, Jerry Weintraub, who sure. passed away not too long ago. Yeah. And Jerry, Jerry's wife was a famous singer, wonderful lady. And uh, she asked me if I knew of a little band that could play it for their party. And it, <laughs> so I knew the kids had just moved out from Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Jeff and his brothers and so forth. And I yeah. said, yeah, I mean, so I got him the job. It was one of those days. It was night. This was actually 1970. Wow. So you, you're responsible for Toto. That's cool. Man. Oh no, not, not at all <laughs> responsible, but I guess I gave them their first job. Maybe <laughs> they, cool. I don't even think they were called Toto then. <laughs> wow. That's, was, that's quite something. That's cool. Yeah. It was really fun. It was really nice. And I got to know him a little bit, and and years later, of course, I was working with her dad a lot, Joe. Yeah. Jeff unfortunately went off, and and un, well, fortunately, he had to be with with Toto, but unfortunately, passed away. Yeah, that was tragic. So it is, yeah. 
you you finished high school in in Hartford, and then how soon after that did you go to Korea? Well, the thing is, I moved to, after Hartford about 1945-ish. I moved to to California. My parents moved to California for my father's health. Okay, and um, we I settled in San Bernardino. Mm-hmm. Where my older sister lived with her family. Okay. And they had room for me, so I moved in with them for, for a little bit. Yeah. And I also went to San Bernardino High School. That was a whole other growing experience because all the children had their own cars. Oh, okay. So I knew you, we never saw that back east, you know, right. children. A whole new world kids, out there. Kids never had cars. Yeah. I, well, I think I was 15 then. Yeah. Or just turning 16, because I remember I bought my first car when I was 16. Mm-hmm. It's just a relic of an old car, antique. It was probably twenty dollars, twenty-five dollars. Really? <laughs> but I learned a lot about automotive, you know, during that during that time. Yeah, I guess you'd have to. And I started to. I had a little band, little band of my own, three, four-piece guys, and a couple girls from uh, high school. In California, you're talking about? Yeah, San Bernardino High School. Okay, yeah. And uh, it was at that time that uh, there was a a young singer by the name of Julie London who was doing Beautiful Gal that was also singing with bands. Yeah. And some years later, I got a call from the city and the state of California, and and they had a big dinner for me and they gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. It was only gone to two people in, in San Bernardino, and that was Julie London and myself. Very nice, very nice uh, award that they gave me among all my awards. I've mm-hmm. got so many of them. God. I, <laughs> I, I can imagine you, you would have a, a cluttered trophy shelf at this point. Let me tell you, a lot of it has gone back east. They're building a Halbrain Museum. Oh, really? In in Hartford? No, it's going to be in, so far, they tell me, Joplin, Missouri. Why? Why there? Well, because my daughter is, and her husband, my son-in-law, they're really, uh, they bought this building, and they thought it would be a great place. Joplin used to be a major music uh, town yeah. for blues and so forth. Anyway, it was part of it was their idea. Okay, cool. They wanted a they wanted to have an, uh, uh, a museum in honor of me. So I said, listen, it's all yours anyway, so do what you want. <laughs> sure, yeah. So that's what they're doing. At okay. the moment, they've moved in with me. They've been taking taking care of me as home givers or something. Or Nice. That's good to have family around. So what happened with that band that you were playing in in high school? Was that something that you played a lot with, or was it more just... It was just of- a little band, and we used to work at certain places up at Lake Arrowhead and Lake Gregory mm-hmm. um, and little towns around San Bernardino. I used to play at a place called the Chickabunny. Oh, yeah. What was that place like? And the Chickabunny served chicken and rabbit. <laughs> Hence the name. And our salary for playing, I don't know, two, three hours, four hours on a Friday night or a Saturday night, we used to get $5 cash yeah. plus a dinner. Chicken and bunny. And that was that was the chicka bunny. <laughs> and then and then there was a, a we kind of moved to a place called Arthur's Swing Club. 
which was in Colton, California, C-O-L-T-O-N. Yeah. And uh, it was a great, I had joined a great little band. The band leader's name was Ace All Good. Nice. Great and he name. played the piano. He played an old upright rinky-tink piano. Yeah. And I was getting a lot of experience with honky-tonk music. Sure. Because I also had seen all these bands and all these people that played and because in those days, you had to play dance music, and you had to learn all, all of the dance rhythms. Yeah. That's really what led me into uh, the rock and roll field, was mm-hmm. because, you know, I was strictly a jazz drummer. I yeah. mean, I had been with the Count Basie Orchestra. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get any more jazzier than that, or yeah, bebopish. Yeah. And then, and then um, all of a sudden... Rock and roll came along in the late 50s. Yeah. And I just happened to be a, a drummer who I didn't care who I played with, when so many of the, the L.A. great drummers, great, great drummers, they refused to play this filthy music, rock and roll. Right. It was sort of beneath their, beneath their pay grade. A lot of guys today that say things like, I wouldn't play that rap music. Mm-hmm. Well, when you start seeing the checks coming in, <laughs> that can that can sway you. <laughs> so that was one of the one of the big squares for me when when people like uh, people like H. B. Barnum was a great arranger in town, mm-hmm. uh, black gentleman, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the time I spent in San Bernardino was working after hours clubs with almost all black musicians. I was the only white guy even led into these some of these after hours clubs. There were clubs where your your clubs where you brought your own booze. Sure, yeah. They were like yeah. bottle clubs. You brought your own bottle and you paid a cover charge and you danced to the music. And this would be you're basically playing like swing swing tunes. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. And it was mostly most of that stuff came from the various dances. I mean you it was a foxtrot. Right. And the swing and the the Lindy Hop and all these various dances. But today, the, or in later years, it was the Frog and the, all the crazy names they came up with for dances. <laughs> uh, was there any? Were, were you involved in any country music at all? Like through the, through the Western swing stuff that was going on? I was because in 1957, it's too long a story to go into, but there was an agent that saw me playing at a jazz club in Hollywood. And he said that he was now managing a singer, and the singer was about to be signed by Capitol Records, and they needed a drummer. And he said it was kind of country, and I said, well, I'm not really a country drummer, but thanks anyway. And he said, no, 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 I've been watching you for a couple of nights, and you can handle it. These are very nice kids from Texas. Mm-hmm. So I joined this little group, and it was called Tommy Sands right. and the Raiders. Yeah, and he, he, he got pretty big, Tommy Sands. Right, exactly. Tommy was one of the major teenage idols. Yeah, he was sort of like, they were kind of building him up to be the next Elvis, right? Exactly. In fact, the his manager was Tom... Was, was, uh, oh, Tom Parker? Tom Parker, right. Yeah, so that's how I happened to fit in with the rock and roll scene because his little, the two little guys that were with Tommy, Eddie Edwards and Leon Bagwell, who was a bass, upper uh, uh, 
stand-up bass player, slap bass player, if you yeah. will. Sure. And Eddie Eddie Edwards was a great little guitar player and singer. Mm-hmm. And we used to do songs like Who Wears Short Shorts. In those <laughs> days, those were the popular rock and roll songs. And we were doing some of those songs, along with the songs that we recorded with Tommy Sands. Okay. And then my name started getting around Hollywood real quick. Okay. So I was a rock and roll drummer, <laughs> and uh, they could depend on me. And then Earl Palmer was sort of was a black gentleman, yeah. And he was a great jazz and blues drummer from New Orleans, yeah. who had settled in the L.A. area. And his name got around as a rock and roll drummer, and he had so many calls. He started he started recommending me, and that's really what got me going in the Hollywood area. Okay. I joined the union and... and, uh, Do you remember your first um, session experience where you were actually called in to, you know, to play, to back somebody up and and it was like a full legit session? Do you remember what that would have been? Well, one of the first ones was uh, a song called Another Saturday Night. Mm -hmm. And it was... um, Was it Sam Cooke? Sam Cooke. That's exactly who it was. Okay. And Sam always used, you know, black guys. They were all jazz musicians. And they were, H.B. Barnum was the arranger. And some of the guys were saying, how come you got this white guy playing drums? <laughs> and and H.B. was very famous at the time. And he said, he said, you better listen to this guy because this is where it's at. And H.B. was tremendous help for me. Uh-huh to get going because with his recommendation everybody started calling me and pretty soon rocket and real rock and roll was just starting you know 55 58 yeah all that stuff kind of became rock and roll like there's a that's a pretty fine line between sam cook stuff and and you know little richard and things like that like it's not that different really exactly exactly so that was your was that your first session playing for so i got to work with you know people like uh like um Oh, what's his name? Fats Domino and and a whole lot of people that that hired me. Yeah, and it, my name be, became synonymous synonymous with hit songs because you know I became Phil Spector's drummer. I became the Beach Boys drummer. Yeah, I became everybody's drummer, and and I started calling us the Wrecking Crew because the older guys were saying these kids are going to wreck the business. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good reason. And well, in fact, we were building a tremendous business all those years ago, and when they thought it was just pure garbage and it would, it would soon be gone in a, in a matter of weeks. Yeah, of course. And before you know it, we infiltrated. We were making movies and television and pilots. Yeah. And commercials, especially, and and. Uh, Producers were coming from all over the world, from all over Europe. Every every country in Europe, producers were coming. They wanted rock. They wanted the Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a movie out called The Wrecking Crew now. Yeah, of course, I've seen it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. And it looks like uh, it looks like um, this is the first time to get out, but they they might be doing a series on it. I got a call from MGM. Oh, cool. And. Uh, I might be signing a contract with them. I don't know. We we'll see. Yeah. Well, that would be but, awesome. But it was all during during those fifties, sixties with Jan and Dean, Johnny Rivers, uh, everybody in the business. We were recording. 
me and Glenn Campbell and Tommy Tedesco. Yeah. And Lyle Ritz was a bass player, and Jimmy Bond. Yeah. Yeah. Who we who we called Double O Seven later in years. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And we were doing all these demos for for songwriters. Yeah. And, and also uh, for artists. Yeah. Once you got called in for a few sessions, how soon was it that you were getting in there regularly and developing that whole th- that whole thing, that whole scene that was going on? Oh, man, I had to get a secretary. I had to get a workbook. <laughs> I joined the union. Was it all really fast, like it happened within months, kind of? Exactly, within weeks. Wow. We were doing demonstration records for people like Nat King Cole and some of those people at Capitol at uh, Columbia Records, CBS, yeah, man, television. Uh, it was everything that was going on. It was the very beginnings, the roots of rock and roll. And pretty soon, I mean, I was rubbing shoulders and and doing records with Frankie Avalon and 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 uh, the beautiful little gal that passed away recently. She was sick. All the actors and actresses. They all wanted to be singers, and they all came to me. <laughs> I was recording with that whole, what they were calling them the Brat Pack. Sure, yeah. But, of course, here we were recording with the Rat Pack. <laughs> yeah. And, and I became Nancy Sinatra's drummer for 33 years. We both retired together. That's beautiful. And so it just, you know, after, you know, in Hollywood there's an old saying, you're only as good as your last hit. <laughs> well, my last hit was every day. I was in, you know, we were on the charts with Phil Spector. Yeah. We did that. We did the record Be My Baby, which completely changed the drumming world. I mean, yes, really did. brought my name up. And um, I became friends with all these great drummers. Charlie Watts, a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. They'll be out here soon doing some personal appearances. Oh, cool. And they used to come to my house. I had a home, beautiful home in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. And I was living that life. Yeah. I really was. That's amazing, man. So, so uh, like, tell me, give me, a, like, a bit of a picture of what was your day-to-day life at the peak of doing Wrecking Crew stuff when you're working for Phil Spector, when you're working for Brian Wilson and doing Sinatra records and all this stuff. Like, were you buried in work were you just working seven days a week what was that what was your life actually like at that point we began we began working seven days a week the most sessions i ever did were seven sessions in one day whoa and the way that happened uh, a union session was three hours sometimes three and a half hours sure but what happened was that you know when we would be on a five minute break at western recorders yeah recording the Beach Boys or Jan and Dean, and it goes on and on. What happened was that a producer across the hallway in another studio would come over and grab me on a five and say, come do a quick tambourine overdub for me. (laughs) Yeah. Which which I would do. Yeah. And they would put me on as a a full session, a full three-hour session. Sure. It's just the way it was. And I was so fortunate enough to have... All these people that trusted me, yeah. Because, as I've said before, I know John Denver said many times, he didn't make the records. It was all us guys who <laughs> really produced his records. 
did you eventually get burnt out? Like, I can't imagine keeping up that pace of work for that long, like maybe for a few years or. Well, I'll tell you when you're, when you're wanting it bad enough all your life. Yeah. And you realize all of a sudden you're in it. You're going to do your best to continue. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way it was. Fortunately, did like did you ever hit the wall of like not being able to handle working seven days a week? No, no, no. Oh, that's cool. Because I was lucky enough to uh, to have been that lucky to to have bought a beautiful palatial estate in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Which eventually was bought, purchased by Ben Stiller, the actor. Really. And I remember it back in the in the sixties. I for this entire place it was amazing 30 something rooms of state Spanish Mediterranean magnificent place yeah and I bought it for I don't know somewhere around 50 grand seriously and I sold it for um, unfortunately a bad divorce yeah and uh, instead of having to write her an alimony check for you know 10 or 12 years yeah I just decided I would sell everything I own and pay her off, which I did. Oh, good for you. And uh, that's what I did. And I, But I wound up, you know, I continued to work, and I was working for all the major composers, the major movie companies, the, all the major record companies, the commercials, all the ad agencies, the people that were coming from New York. Yeah, it's just full tilt. People like Burt Bacharach. Yeah. And all the great artists that came out of New York were coming to L.A. Yeah, it was... To it was work a, with the Wrecking Crew. You worked with a huge list of, of producers, but I'm, I'm curious about, like, as a musician and drummer, what was your working relationship like with, um, you know, with somebody like Phil Spector? It was great. Yeah, really? Uh, I had carte blanche because of my reputation. Really? Clean, no drugs. Yeah. R&R to me was responsibility and reliability, <laughs> yeah. and that's what it was, and, and every studio that I worked, every place I played, I had a drum tech working for me who passed away a couple of years ago, uh-huh. uh, Ricky Fauche, uh-huh. F-A-U-C-H-E-R, yeah. and Rick was the talk of the town, every musician knew him, every drummer got to know him, everybody wanted him. Whenever Ringo came to town, Ringo would use Ricky. Mm-hmm. I'd always get a call, do you mind if Rick helps me? And no, of course not. And Rick was always one drum set in front of me and one drum set behind me. Yeah. And he was so loyal and so well-trusted, he had keys to all the studios. Oh, that's cool. He could go in at 4 o'clock in the morning and have me set up for an 8 o'clock downbeat. Yeah. And then he'd be right back in. But he'd be somewhere else setting me up for an eleven o'clock downbeat or a one o'clock, whatever. Right. So you could you could just waltz from session to session. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we used to call that we used to call that dovetailing. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Right. Working with somebody like, like Spectre, what do you remember specifically about, say, a session like Be My Baby, where it is a super creative drum part? Um, and uh, like, h- how much input were you getting from somebody like Spectre, or did he just totally trust you to come up with something? Well, well Phil Spectre's arranger was Jack Nietzsche. Yeah, genius. Very nice kid, very nice young kid. And he was kind of classically trained. Yeah. And so he was putting in what he was putting in uh, with horn parts and guitar parts, etc. Rhythm section. Mostly, it was all rhythm section in the beginning, because mm-hmm. we still when we started with Phil, it was only single track. Right. And then it, and Larry Levine was the great engineer that came up with figuring out how to get make two tracks out of one track, and they call ping ponging. Yeah. Yeah. And I never got into the electronics part of it. Mm-hmm. But it it all kind of grew with us, or we grew with it, and then we, you know, eventually they could find out. We found out how things could be overdubbed, and they could overdub rhythm sounds and tambourines yeah. and and conga drums and bongos and all of the all of the percussive instruments. Yeah. So on a, on a tune like "Be My Baby," where where there's you know all this percussive stuff going on, and then there's like that melody with a sax, and I think it's a glockenspiel. Is all that stuff going on at once live in the one room, or was was with that stuff? Of- well, sometimes it was. We yeah. had I don't know something like thirty guys in a very small room. That's amazing. And then eventually they would overdub horns or strings. So there was some overdubbing. Oh, def- definitely. Okay. It's just one of those things that, that it slowly, it all evolved. Yeah. And Phil Spector was one of the main producers because he came from New York as a young kid. Yeah. And he started doing stuff with us that was massive. I mean, where normally it was a piano, bass, drums, guitar. Yeah. Well, with Phil... He started using four pianos. Right. <laughs> Three guitars. Four, four basses. Yeah, yeah. Six or seven guitars. What did you think um, of that? How, how, like, how crazy was that to, to try? Well, we loved it. It was great fun. It was something new, and it was catching on, and it was everything we did. Yeah. And Phil, Phil was a brilliant young kid from New York, came out of the Brill Building. Yeah. Phil was very superstitious. Oh, okay. Like a lot of producers, if they have a hit record, they want the same microphones, the same chairs, the same rugs. The same drummer. Everything that was when they made the hit. Yeah. And Phil was no different. And and the thing of it, Phil would always record on a Friday night. Okay. And everybody was tired. You had a long day, but you gave it all you could. You always gave 110%. Mm-hmm. And then Phil would, by the time he would do take fifteen or eighteen, and he had it in the in the in the, the can, so to speak. Um, he'd be mixing at four o'clock in the morning, and he'd have a transcribed 
transcription record ready by 7.30, 6.30, 7.30 in the morning, he'd be right at the radio stations. Wow. Giving it, giving these to the morning drive disc jockeys. Yeah. And that's how he would, smart he was, businessman. He's, so he's kind of known as, as somebody that would do a lot of takes and like really kind of like work people hard. Do you remember that about him? Like, do you remember being... Well, he worked long hours. Yeah. It wasn't... And, you know, I guess it got hard after a while. But luckily, it was just me. It was only me on drums. Right. Uh, it was usually Frankie Cap, who was a great drummer, jazz drummer. Uh-huh. He was on percussion. Okay. And then anybody who came to the session to peek in, like um, like Brian Wilson, yeah. before anyone ever heard of Beach Boys, he had a little group called the Wolver- Wolverines, I think, or something like that. Yeah. They were named for the shirts that they were wearing. Right. I forget the name of the shirt. Okay. Anyway, that's when I first met Brian. Yeah. And that's when Brian uh, started coming over to my house and playing on my piano and and uh, my little daughter fell in love with him. Oh, okay. And uh, he was just a terrific young guy, that, and he was brilliant. He obviously was a genius, but he had to hear the songs um, before he would record, and that's the way it worked with Brian. He would bring in two, three, four guys, sit there, listen to the music, ask, make any kind of suggestions that he wanted or how, any suggestions that we made. Mm-hmm. He absolutely lived by whatever we thought. Yeah. Um, it's just the way Brian was. They did not do it. Brian did not get into a, a record until he thought I it sounded perfectly to me. Huh. And it, it felt good. If it felt good, we had a good record. Did you do demoing with him before you would even make the record? Or... or... Was that no, we would, we would go in on a three-hour session and, and sometimes do ten minutes. Really, he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear three guitars play a certain lick. So he would just go in, check that out, and then you're and then right. I would it. call the guys. I would contract the guys. We had originally Steve Douglas, the saxophone player, yeah. who passed away much too young. Uh-huh. Uh, Steve was contracting in the beginning. Okay, we were like one big happy family. It's just yeah, an amazing. Yeah. So, Amazing time. So Brian, so seemed- we all grew. We all grew together into. We were sort of the roots of of the American or the pop record culture, yeah, as man. opposed to uh, New Orleans had their blues and, and Memphis had their blues and stuff like that. And before you know it, I mean, now I was with Elvis, yeah, because. Colonel Tom knew me as a straight, you know, sober guy. Yeah. And uh, never had to worry about me. I became very good friends with Elvis, did all these records, did the, his big comeback television show, and, and on and on and on. Yeah, man, you played you played on some classic Elvis hits. When you have that kind of background, anybody that hires you generally says, look, just do what you think is right, you know, just make me a hit record. Yeah. So when you have that kind of reputation, it really is great because people are just, they're happy to get you. Yeah. We were booked months in advance. Were you? Okay, yeah. Um, it was just, it was thrilling. And it so, was the kind of thing you waited for all your life. 
so somebody like Brian, though, it seems like he would be like the 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 muse would strike him and he would go in, you know, and want to record right away. How how were you able to accommodate that if you're busy three months in advance and Brian Wilson wants to do a song now? Well, the thing is, when Brian when Brian Wilson wanted to do something, we knew that he didn't work for hours. We knew that we could go in. Okay. and do whatever we were going to do it may be in uh, 30 minutes sometimes 10 minutes so or maybe maybe we'd run an hour, an hour and a half but people understood that anyone who hired us they were hiring us with the understanding that if, it, if we were an hour late they'd already worked, waited months for us, an hour meant nothing Right. So people people were happy to wait. I mean, when people came from Italy or France or Germany or whatever, England, yeah, yeah. Uh, they were just happy to have us. Fifteen or twenty minutes late, that's fine. They really didn't okay didn't mind. Yeah. So you could you could fit in a session for Brian Wilson and then just kind of be late, be late for somebody else. Right. Always. Yeah, right. At first, he was kind of a guy that hung out at the Phil Spector sessions, right? And kind of got that sort of where he developed his his idea and ended up taking a lot of those musicians and using them for himself. Um, exactly. You know, as, and developed his own sound that way. Did you see him right away as being like a really original writer and arranger? Or did that take a while to kind of realize what, what was going on with him? When I first met Brian, I thought of him as just a young teenager yeah which he was and he was it was rather childish some of it yeah it was let's face it, it was the surf music craze yeah and we had already been working with people like dick dale people like bruce and terry uh yeah. i can't even think of all those people there, there was something like 175 groups that we were doing in that little western studio three uh-huh and I recently had a very nice reunion with Brian and Western. Nice. When they called me in because they were doing a um, Western, was always known as United Western. Right. And then it became, I don't know, Ocean Way, and then it became various names. And they recently did a documentary, and they brought me in yeah. to play some drums and do a lot of talking about the studios. And they remodeled everything. It was just beautiful. Oh, beautiful. And that's where we used to do Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. We did so many things there. And and what, when I finished about a two and a half hour, three hour interview, I was ready to leave. And the uh, and it was a wrap. And the producer or the director asked me if I he said, "There's a fellow next door who wants to say hi to you." And I said, "Yeah." And I walked in, and there was Brian. <laughs> How long had it so been we had since a, we had a very nice reunion, and Brian was there with his wife, uh-huh. and and uh, they were mixing on something that Brian had just been doing. You know, Brian's got that his band called the Wonder Mints. Yeah, they're fantastic, and they're doing just great. And we had just a terrific reunion together. H- had you not seen him for a while? Brian was like a kid for me, and I hadn't seen him. Mm-hmm. probably in three or four years. Okay. So it was a very nice reunion, you know. So you did those early tunes with him, and then, you know, like, like that whole 
around 66 or whatever, when, when you were doing pet sounds, it seemed to kind of like go to, go to the next level of, of intensity and and craziness was, were those sessions like, it seems to me like those must've been longer sessions. They, they couldn't have been quick little 20 minutes, half hour. Well, no, 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 no. They were, they, I, as I recall, they would have been regular sessions. Uh Uh-huh. Um, what do you remember about, there was a lot of experimenting. Uh Uh-huh. There was a lot of, let's listen to that. Okay. And, and maybe it was only four bars or six bars or something. And how was that process for you? Did you find it in, totally engaging and fun? Or was it kind of like really... Um, it was all of the above. It, really? meant a big, it meant a big or bigger paycheck. <laughs> yeah. It meant, you know, you, could, you would be making your mortgage on your house and yeah. the automobiles you were buying on the toys that kept you having fun, your trips to Hawaii, your trips to Europe, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it all came together like spaghetti. How long do you think you spent on that record? Like what was the, what was the overall arc? of? Well, I know that, I know that good vibrations, we did something like 18 or 19 sessions. Yeah. That was an epic one, right? It was. Yeah. Uh And, and all that kind of stuff, as I said before, we would go in with Brian, expecting to do a couple hours, whatever, and we would sit down, and he would have written out just a little guide, mm-hmm. what we call the chord chart, yep. with the changes and where it started and where it ended. Yeah. And we didn't even know the song yet. Right. And and Brian just wanted to hear the rhythm section play this or this or this, whatever, and he'd say, that's fine, thanks, guys, and he'd leave. Uh, sometimes in a matter of minutes, sometimes in a matter of an hour, an hour and a half. So it would just kind of satisfy his... Have you seen any of the, I guess they call them underground tapes about with Brian and myself and other people? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, some of that stuff was, that's just the way it was. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He wanted to hear a little bit of this, a little bit of that, stop here, more here, less here. And that's the way we worked with Brian, but Brian, that was the genius of Brian Wilson. He, no question that he was a genius mm-hmm. and he was having a lot of problems with his father. Yeah. I'll who say did, unfortunately, uh, Murray. Was he around? Do you remember Murray being around? Only in the beginning. Yeah. And okay. Brian finally banned him. Yeah. And that was the end of it. And, and so he went out, you see, you gotta remember that Murray, the father, at one time wrote a little rinky-dink, honky-tonk song that Lawrence Welk recorded. Right. This was before the Beach Boys were even a seed or in his mind. Mm -hmm. And so naturally when Brian started making records, little demos and things, his father expected to run things. His father had a big record with Lawrence Welk. Right. Well, it was a different kind of a record. Yeah. And he couldn't couldn't get it through his head, and he would keep telling Brian, this rock and roll stuff is garbage. Yeah. It's not going to go anywhere. You're doing it wrong, and on and on and on. He was driving Murray. Murray was driving Brian crazy. Yeah. And he finally had to stop him from coming, and yeah. he did. Yeah. And what did Murray do? He went out and hired us. <laughs> and we became a group called the Sunrays, and we had a couple hit albums really? with him. With Murray? But we were doing it the way Brian would have done it. 
Right. That's crazy. I know. Wow. It was it, it was nuts. It was yeah. nuts. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about working? Um, I'm I'm really interested in in how that wall of sound thing evolved with multiple bass players. Like I'm wondering how, as a drummer, how that felt to you. I don't know how much of that you could actually hear when it was going down, but there was. Well, you know, I loved it. Yeah, I okay. loved it. You know, because you, you would have. I had... was in the middle of the studio. Yeah. At my drums. Yeah. And all the musicians around me, and they were all friends of mine. It was. No different doing the Tijuana Brass right. than Phil Spector. I mean, it was okay. just, they were fun times. Everybody was smiling yeah. because we were the envy of the world. Yeah. We were getting more money than anyone ever dreamt we could, et cetera, et cetera. It was that whole chop suey of every, all the thoughts that go through your head. Uh-huh. And, with, and Phil Spector used to, he was always in the booth running from side to side, and we could see him through the glass. Yeah. And he was like a conductor in a symphony orchestra really? where he would look at guys and, and would raise his hands as for more, more, more. Yeah, yeah. Or tell the other side, less, less, less. <laughs> it's just the way it was. And I used to tell Phil, I said, Phil, we ought to do a record called the Phil Harmonic. <laughs> and, and he thought about that for a long time, and I we bet. were going to... And, we never did do it. He was also going to do a an album one time about just the fades, the endings of all of his hit songs. Really? Because if you want to hear crazy drumming, yeah, right, oh, the fade out. That's, that's when right. I would go nuts because he <laughs> used he would not let me play a note until he was ready and the orchestra was ready. Yeah. And when we started really recording, then he would look at me and say, "Now." And then you would go. And then it. I started playing. Wicked. So that's where the craziness, uh-huh. a lot of the drum craziness came in, where I was playing, you know, four beats against three beats or yeah. something like that, you know, right. and, and the old joke about a backbeat on 9 and 11. <laughs> uh, it was just all craziness, but it was all in fun. Yeah. And we were we were all doing it together, uh-huh. and it was we were like a family. Uh-huh. And the jokes used to run with Phil, Especially when guys would say, Phil, my kids are getting big. When are you going to let us go home? <laughs> you know, and they were all jokes. Everybody laughed. Yeah, and he was right in there? Like, he was he was jokey with you guys? and, and Absolutely. Always... He okay. loved comedy. He particularly loved me, aside from my drumming. Yeah. Because one of my, one of my dear friends was a great comedian, Lenny Bruce, in those days. Oh, yeah. And Phil was a big Lenny Bruce fan. And really? that... That automatically made me something. Who knows what? You were in the club. <laughs> but then when when uh, when Phil, you know, got the castle, the famous castle in mm-hmm. Alhambra, uh, I was over there all the time. He was having catered get-togethers, luncheons, or dinners for for everybody, for whoever, all of his attorney friends, all of his wow. big shop friends. Did those get weird at all? It was just he wanted me there for comedy relief. <laughs> Tell some jokes. Really? Which I used to do. What about like as things went on with him? Like I've heard some pretty wacky stories about the like. There's that Leonard Cohen record that he did that you played on Death of a Ladies Man. Right. Uh, did were things getting a little crazy with him around that time? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Bill knew it. it Phil just... always knew what he was doing. Yeah. He sounded a little weird at times. He sounded like it was craziness. 
but somehow he knew how to get to where he was going. Okay. The finished the finished product. Yeah, yeah. He never lost sight. That was Phil. That was that was Phil. I know what. One of the things that hurt him was when he uh, worked. He did something with the Beatles. Yeah. I forget what the record was, and they they weren't really happy with it, and that didn't make him very happy. Yeah, that was the Let It Be record. And then we did the when we did the uh, John Lennon's record. John Lennon's record, exactly. Yeah. When we did that, I mean, Phil was absolutely straight as an arrow. It was John Lennon who was more cuckoo than anything else. Really? What do you remember about that album? Well, John was, at the time, it was estranged from Yoko. Yeah. And he, it wasn't an easy time for John, and he was drinking a lot, very heavily. Was Harry Nilsson around during those sessions? I think Harry might have been there once or twice, you know. Yeah, because that was sort of that period where they were hanging out, doing a lot of uh, stuff right, together. Right, <laughs> right, right. Anyway, I must say that our wrecking crew was just not at all into all of that booze and drugs. And our vice was cigarettes. Everybody smoked cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Everybody drank coffee yeah. and Coca-Cola. Yeah. John Lennon used to come to work straight as an arrow. Mm-hmm. We would sit and talk for the longest time. Mm-hmm completely intelligent. Yeah. Yeah, he was a very intelligent guy. Talking about the old days of Hollywood, the beginnings of the of the wrecking crew, the yeah, beginning was, of recording. So he was really interested in all that stuff, in talking to you about all that stuff? He was keen to... We talked about all kinds of everything associated with recording uh-huh. and with our lives. And then he would start drinking from this bottle, the biggest bottle I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Really? It was probably two and a half gallons I don't oh, know man. if it was vodka or gin or whatever he, and and of course John came from that northern England uh, Liverpudlian Liverpoolian. Yeah, he had it in his blood. Of, they would fight at the drop of a hat. I mean, they're ready to fight anybody, yeah. anytime. And that was his. Unfortunately, that's where the mood changed. Uh huh. And he wanted to fight the world. Yeah. So you saw that happen, and, and so, the, so the early part of the days would be really productive, and then things would just kind of melt down after that? Exactly it. Yeah, it was awful. As far as the Wrecking Crew goes, like, did you guys hang out? Like, were you buddy? Like, were you and Carol Kay buddies? And, like, did you did you guys all... Like... She used to come along. She was a guitar player, and she was a decent guitar player. Uh-huh. But guys used to throw her a bone because she was raising a family, uh-huh. and she had to make some money. She was a guitar player, and then she started fooling around with the other, the in-between bass, and Carol started playing it, uh-huh. and they liked it, Spectre liked it, Yeah. and then unfortunately, the real bass player, Ray Pullman, the great bass player, yeah. Gray Fantastic. Ranger, yeah. Ray passed away, and unfortunately, that was, Carol moved right into the bass part. And she wanted to be known as the first lady of the base. Well, yeah, she. I mean, it definitely seems from her end of her point of view that she was right in the in the in the crew with you guys. But obviously, that's not really the case. So we all try to just stay away from it. Yeah. And Carol is out there doing interviews like she's the great Carol Kay, and she's did every record. Mention a record that was done in in Australia. Oh yeah, she did it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, she flew in to, just to do that record. <laughs> I'm curious about the uh, Love and Mercy movie, which I'm I'm guessing you must have seen, um, that recent Brian Wilson. Picture. I have not seen it. I oh, you have haven't not seen it? Seen okay. Because they like really 
painstakingly uh, went and recreated a bunch of those sessions. I wondered if you'd had a chance to check it out and what you thought about that. But I guess you... Uh... I just haven't seen the movie yet. Oh, okay. Well, you're and in I've it. Had nice talks. I've had nice talks with Brian about it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Everything is cool. Everything is wonderful. And the kid that played me in the, in the movie, uh-huh. Johnny Sneed, fine uh-huh. actor that played me in the movie. Okay. We got together. We had nice meetings. Oh, cool. I got together with the director. Yeah. They came to my home and then he wanted me to re- rewrite scripts and things, which I did. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was It was just simple. And it was no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, Brian had that, he still does. He has that kind of feeling inside of him about me being there and helping him and doing whatever I did and knowing that I was straight, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I yeah, went yeah. through Brian with that whole craziness with that Dr. Landy and all that crap. Yeah. You, so you saw that firsthand, I guess. It's just terrible, terrible. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. They, they go into that a lot in the movie, too, as well. Anyway, it's just. I was just another part of it, yeah, and that's the way it was. Well, I'm curious about about the um, Simon and Garfunkel sessions you did too. Um, Bridge over troubled water is a pretty classic. The greatest, record. just um, the greatest. Can you tell me about those sessions? Were were they done in L.A. or or New York? Well, we did we did uh, a lot of the stuff at uh, CBS New York. Yeah, and we we did a lot of the stuff at at. Uh, CBS on Sunset okay. on the Strip. So, you, but you weren't living in New York or anything. They just brought you out. To no, play. no, they were okay. just they were just flying me in. Yeah, and and flying Joe Osborne in or whoever was there. Okay. Paul Simon is another brilliant writer. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And uh, you know he's experimenting all the time. He, I think he just had a new record that came out recently that I yeah. heard part of. Yeah. He hires good people and he lets them do their thing. Yeah, he's always had great drummers, that's for sure. Right, of course. Uh, so, so with that session, there seems to have been a lot of experimenting going on as well. Like, did you, did you work with him a lot on those sounds? So the thing was, you got to remember something. These big hits, uh, Mrs. Robinson, yep. Bridge Over Trouble Water, they were Grammy records of the year. Yeah. They're huge. Unfortunately, they were his only Grammy records of the year. He's had many Grammys, lots of number ones. Uh-huh. But that was the respect that he had for us and the trust yeah. that he had for us. Is anything we wanted to do on a record, yeah. do it. And Ray Alley, their engineer, producer, yeah. felt the same way. Anything we wanted to do, there was complete trust. Mm-hmm. You just do what I wanted to Put tire chains on on a bridge over troubled water. Yeah, go for it. They said go for it. And, and like a, I worked as a method actor for some years before I got lucky in music. Really? And I used to see all these great actors around me, uh-huh. and they wanted to know what was their motivation. Why was the scene the scene? Why did this happen and that happen? And I used to feel feel the same way. I never recorded a song that I first did not hear because I wanted to know what I'm supposed to be doing on this record. Right. Is this a person singing quietly? Is this a person screaming like, right. Like, uh, you need to know these screamers. Do I play quiet? Do I play loud? Do I play? What do I play? So by listening to the song, because what is a song? I ask you, 
Well, basically, a song is a story. Yeah. And you're playing to the story. Right. You're not playing for your own drums or your own guitar or your own piano. Yeah. You're playing for the story. And if you, like I tell people, my drumsticks are my paintbrushes. It's like I'm painting with my drumsticks. Yeah. If I hear something here that I should be doing, I do it. If I hear something over there that what I should be doing, I do it. Uh-huh. And 99% of the time it was the right call because <laughs> that's what happened when producers came around. They said, do what you did, do what you did, do what you did. Well, that's the way I worked and that's the way I did it. Yeah, yeah. In the same way with Joe Osborne, one of the greatest bass players in the world. Yeah. That that unfortunately Carol Kay takes takes a lot of credit for the stuff that Joe does. Yeah. It's just amazing that all we get all these records of the year. All the stuff we did with the fifth dimension. You want to hear some bass playing? Listen to all the records we did and they were and they were Grammy records of the year with the also with the fifth dimension. I mean mm-hmm. I get calls from some of the guys once in a while, I mean, there's very little recording going on anymore. Yeah. Because everybody has their own studios and their own homes and their own garages. Yeah. Most of the major studios have closed. Yeah, it's too bad, isn't it? And most of the major record companies mm-hmm. are just doing releases of new, new, I mean, old records. Yeah. Being remastered and so forth. That's what that's their business today. Do you ever get asked to play these days, or have you just totally retired? Well, I just did a, uh, uh, well, it'll probably be a scoop for you. I just worked on three of the 12 Pet Sounds records being done as jazz bebop records. Really? Yep. That's cool. Who's, what sort of, uh, like, which artists are doing that? Well, it's, it's, it's Don Landy, the piano player that started yeah. out originally with us. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a great idea of his. And we went out to this new studio in the San Fernando Valley and we spent a day and it was just great. It came out great. The stuff we did. That's amazing. Well, I did three of them. He's yeah. using, he's using all different people. Yeah. For an album. That'll eventually be a Don Randy project or what, what name will that be under? I have no idea. Oh, okay. I have no idea. We started out together with Nancy Sinatra. We were with her those 33 years. So you played with her that long? I did all of her TV shows. I did I did Boots Are Made for Walking, of course. Yeah. Nancy's just a sweetheart, and she lives down here. We're still very good friends. Oh, really? Oh, that's Yeah, great. she lives... Naturally, she lives over on Frank Sinatra Drive. What was that Strangers in the Night record like as far as the session goes? Was that, uh, I mean, you were right at home, obviously, being a jazz drummer, but it was a bit of a departure from some of the other stuff you were doing. What was that session like? Well, the thing is that that Strangers in the Night, I try to explain to people, when I happen to do the record Be My Baby with Phil Spector, Uh it started out, boom, 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 bang, boom, yeah. boom, boom, bang, be my, be my baby. Well, oddly enough, when I listened to Strangers in the Night, I used exactly the same beat. Really? Quietly. Strangers in the Night, boom, ba, 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 boom, da, 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 boom. That drum beat changed the com- entire rock and roll drumming world. 
coming up on a beat four or a beat three, mm-hmm. or if you were in, you know, in, in the, in, in the sixth count, you were coming up on a fourth or a sixth beat. Yeah. The backbeat. It's just a backbeat. The drummers used to call me, Al, what is it you're doing on records that's so big? <laughs> there wasn't a name for and it I would yet. Say, Shelly, man, I said, Shelly, it's just a backbeat on two and four. <laughs> that's all it is. You're playing straight eighths on the hi-hat, uh-huh. or you're playing dotted eighth quarter, dotted eighth sixteenth, as a t- uh, what we call shuffle. Da, 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 da. Yep. Or straight That's all it is. Mm-hmm. Straighten his, straighten him right up. Shelley was a super drummer and one of the great drummers of the world, mm-hmm. and he was a dear friend. And I remember when I when I did the hit record with it was my first record of the year was Taste of Honey with Herb Alpert, Tijuana Brass. I was going down. I think it was Wilcox on Hollywood. Major Street, and I saw Shelly Manns had just opened a new nightclub called Shelly's Manhole. Right, I heard about that place. It was a great place, great little jazz room, and everybody loved it. Yeah. Shelly spotted me walking across the street. He called me over, hello, and blah, blah, we're talking. And I said, Shelly, you're not going to be very happy. He said, I couldn't be happier for you with that record, uh, Taste of Honey. It's a major record, Grammy winner, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, but you're not going to be very happy because Herb Albert is going to be opening a jazz club right down the street here. Oh, really? Did he really? Said, oh, no. I said, <laughs> yeah. He said, What's the name of it? I said, he's calling it the Tijuana Brass Hole. <laughs> <laughs> and Shelly said, no, no, no. I really got him. I really hooked him. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> anyway, it was great fun, and comedy is still my life, and my yeah. life has been one big joke. <laughs> Hardly. One more question about that Sinatra session. Um, would would he have been in the room with you? Like, that was a big band. Absolutely. Uh, sang it live. Yeah. Uh, Everything so, we ever did with Frank was live. Which studio would, would that record have been done in? Because that must have been a big room then, right? That was done in the great big... Western, what we called United Western in the beginning, it was, okay. became Ocean Way, then it was becoming, became East West yeah. Recorders, a humongous room. Yeah, right. Okay, I've heard about that room. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Was Nelson Riddle? No, Nelson was not there. He wasn't It involved. was all um, Ernie Freeman. Okay. One of the great unsung heroes of Hollywood. And so those are like that's a pretty tightly arranged record. Would would they hand you a drum chart, or were you just? Oh, absolutely! Oh, really? absolutely! Okay. So you were reading for that kind of stuff. Absolutely, we we it's... read all of Frank's stuff, but we were at liberty to do what we felt was right. Okay, because it sounds like you. Like I, I can't imagine somebody sticking that those grooves in front of you and having it written exactly like that. Because it exactly. sounds like like exactly. you on that record. Oh, okay. Interesting. A lot of drum parts I've had where people, where the producer just wrote, Hal, do your thing and make me a hit. <laughs> that was that's, the drum part. That's specific. Tell me, uh, in your whole career and all these, like, I don't know how many thousands of records you played on, but it's a lot. Um, well, it's just approaching 6,000. 6,000. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I, re- I recently was adding something that somebody <laughs> sent me. 
<laughs> That's insane. And it's it's just below six thousand singles. Oh my That's God. just recordings. That's not commercials. Right. That's not movies. That's not television. That's not pilots. That's crazy. Just so, recordings. Okay, so in in those six thousand records that you made, what there must be like a couple. Like if you had to pick like one or two that stand out for you, well, I would st- have to pick MacArthur Park. Really? The record that I did with uh, Richard Harris, the great British actor. Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy Webb produced. Um, I would have to do any of the records of the year. Uh-huh. What, just what, the one that we just did, my eighth record of the year was with uh, I'm Not Gonna Miss You with Glenn Campbell. Did you play on that? Yeah. Oh, my God, that's I amazing. Was, that was my eighth re- Grammy-winning record of the year. Just strictly, like, from a drummer like from your own musician point of view, which one, what's a record to you that when you hear it, you're like, yeah, that's like, that's the one for me that like really. One of the great records that for me, whenever I hear it, was a record called Dimension Five by the Fifth Dimension. Fifth Dimension, right. You hear some great record, great drum work, and almost all of it was, was brush work. Who produced that record? I think um, Bones Howe. Oh really? Yeah, really? one of the great, one of the greatest producers, and also a great drummer. I did not know that. Wow. That's yeah, so and I cool. thank goodness that he chose me out of all of the drummers because he felt that I did more for records than any of the drummers. Uh-huh. Because I used to tell people, they'd say, "What's the secret to playing your drums?" I'd say, "The word is listen." Right. What is a song? It's a story. If you don't know what the story is, how do you know what the hell to play? You can't just sit there and smash and grab. <laughs> That's right. That's good advice. And so I color, like I said, I color, I color with my drumsticks. My drumsticks are my paintbrushes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I fill in colors. That's all. That's all I can tell you. That's really good advice. And it started when I was a youngster, and I was working strip clubs. And sometimes the girls that dance used to say, you know, because we were just a trio, piano, trumpet, drums. Yeah. And these girls with 10 or 12, 15 girls a night singing girl after girl after girl doing their dances, and they do slow, medium, fast, slow, medium, fast. And this, a lot of these girls used to come to me. I was just a kid, and they would say, boy, the way you accompany me is just wonderful. I never had drummers play like this for me. <laughs> and that became my byword, I guess, was I was an accompanist. Uh-huh. I didn't never consider myself a major drum influence or anything like that. Right. I was I was a good accompanist because I listened and I was when I was painting with my sticks and I wanted to be part of the song and I wanted it to be a hit. And that's why my God, I've if we ever went through Billboard hits, my God, we were on so many hits. It's insane. That maybe we're not number one, but they were top, at least top fifty. Yeah, more than more than anybody else, I'm sure. Like, the, oh, there's no question about that. No yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, I I know your throat's sore, and and I, you've been really generous with your time, and I really appreciate you. you talking oh, sure, to me. Steve. Anytime, man. Yeah, it's just uh, great to hear some of these stories, and and I, yeah, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me. And hey, listen, it's my pleasure. Anytime, holler. 
Okay, I will do that. Thanks so much, Hal. All right, take care, man. Okay, man. All right, bye-bye. Man, what a history. What a story. He has led the most insane musical life and history of probably anyone on the planet and anyone that will ever walk the planet. Hal Blaine. Amazing. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I'm uh, really enjoying bringing these to you and hope to continue on until I fall over and can't do them anymore. Um, In the meantime, uh, please subscribe on iTunes to the podcast. Leave your feedback, leave your comments. I do appreciate it. And I hope to see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers.